You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda, senior editor at The Diplomat. And I'm joined today by a special guest. Joining me from the UK is Aman Taker. Aman, how are you doing today? Good, Ankit. How are you? Doing great. I'm really glad to have you on your show. It's your first time, I believe. Uh, so for listeners who aren't familiar with Aman, he is a contributor to The Diplomat's South Asia section. He's been writing for us quite a bit on developments in India specifically uh, and, and the broader South Asia region. Uh, and Aman's also a former research associate at the Center for Strategic International Studies in Washington, D.C. Uh, Aman, you want to tell us a little bit about uh, you know, what you find interesting in your, uh, in your studies about India? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, uh, first time here, so it's great to be on the show. And, and I've heard it for a long time, so it's, it's great to be on the contributing side of things. Uh, but yeah, my, my research interests, uh, you know, started really when I was at CSIS, looking at sort of the, the, the twin stories about India, you know, the rise of India as an economic powerhouse and the, you know, the, the prospect of where India could go if, if, if you know, it undertook the, the serious reforms it needs to undertake. Uh, and then also the idea of India as a, as a, you know, a security partner for the United States increasingly in the Indo-Pacific. So covering both of those areas, you know, U.S.-India defense cooperation, the prospects of the Indo-Pacific and uh, what we could do with not just the United States, but Australia, Japan, Indonesia. Uh, and then looking within India, you know, what uh, reforms are really important and necessary for India to reduce poverty get that sustainable development and uh, really create jobs. That was the, the main focus at the Wadwani, uh, Wadwani chair. Uh, and so that's you know where I come at things, really looking to uh, boost both of those areas and, and really sort of uh, call for specific actions that the pol government can take from a policy perspective uh, to create jobs and to increase its standing in the world. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, you actually get at something that I want to talk about today. So, you know, we are we are an Asia geopolitics podcast. We talk about geopolitical topics uh, on the show a lot of the time, as our regular listeners will be aware. Um, but, you know, in the case of India, I think I think something that's often maybe lost in discussions about India in the security sphere is the fact that, you know, one of the one of the major sources of continuity, in my view, across Indian governments has been kind of India's primary grand strategic objective, which is economic upliftment. Right. It's, it's about it's about making India a less poor, more prosperous country. That's been true over changes in a government from the Congress under the UPA to the BJP, certainly in Modi 1.0. And now here we are in Modi 2.0. So uh, for listeners that haven't been listening to the show for too long, uh, we talked about this a little bit after the Indian election results came out in May, but Modi and the Bharatiya Janta Party uh, won a basically an amazing mandate um, in the largest democratic exercise in the world in India. India is one of the um, India is the world's largest democracy. Uh, and after this mandate, uh, the government has pursued a range of policies in the economic sphere. And Aman, actually, you know, one of the things I thought would be a good place to start with our discussion today uh, is an article you wrote for us in September, uh, just a little bit over mm -hmm. a month ago. Now, you talked a little bit about, you know, India's economy running into economic headwinds. Modi 1.0 sort of benefited from a lot of structural factors. Uh, rapprochement with the United States was obviously growing. The world economy was booming. Emerging markets sort of had you know, anxieties at the time, certainly. Um, but, uh, you know, low oil prices globally also greatly uh, helped India's economy. Uh, but now, as Modi 2.0 starts the second term um, after the general elections earlier this year, it seems to be there's a lot more headwinds. Um, 
So, you know, when it comes to things like fiscal policy, monetary policy, structural reforms in India, uh, all of this stuff that's kind of, you know, often left out of the geopolitical conversation, um, what, do you, what do you think, you know, lies ahead here for India? Uh, I, know, I know you've been doing a lot of work uh, specifically on these topics, uh, so I'd love to get your kind of, you know, 30,000-foot view uh, on, on some of these topics. So uh, why don't we start with, um, you know, your view on kind of India's economic headwinds here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the the story for this, you know, even predates the 2019 election. I mean, if you look going into before Balakot in February, I mean, the big story really was about the economic headwinds that Prime Minister Modi and his government were facing, the mandate that he had sort of had about creating you know, millions of jobs every year and putting, you know, 15 lakhs, 150,000 rupees in uh, everyone's bank account. And you know, people sort of like trying to hold him to those promises and realizing that growth was slowing down, uh, partly due to some of the structural reforms they undertook with the GST, and partly because of just you know boneheaded decisions like demonetization. Uh, and uh, ultimately, you saw that you know kind of morph and get into the background uh, once Balakot happened, and, and the story really changed. Uh, but the structural problems never really went away. I mean, we we sort of had. Uh, a very quick slowdown in India's uh, reform agenda. So uh, one of the big projects that I got to work on at CSIS uh, was the Modi reform scorecard, and, you know, tracking every month what kinds of reforms the government was undertaking. And if you look at the pace of that, you know, the first year, um, we they completed six out of the 30 reforms that we outlined. Uh, to the second year, one the third year, and nothing the last two years. So you saw, you know, sort of like inversely as the pace of reform slowed down, uh, structural problems and slow down that sort of narrative picking back up. Uh, and, you know, as we talked about, or as you sort of described in the background, um, that massive uh, mandate when, you know, it was announced, that was sort of the hope was that, okay, we'd come back now that we've got this massive political mandate, we put it to use to get some of these reforms done. That maybe weren't possible in the first term, maybe because the Rajya Sabha wasn't in control for the BJP, maybe because, you know, they just didn't feel like they had political capital to expend in this first term. And Modi sort of talks about that, you know, he's on a 10 or 15 year experiment to reshape the Indian economy and the Indian society. So maybe in the second term they would. Yeah. But you really sort of see um, that at least in the first hundred days, not really manifest. Um, so you saw a budget that wasn't really ambitious in the scope of what it did. Uh, and then, you know, you saw really bad GDP numbers come out within the first 100 days, a really bad unemployment number. So, you know, uh, 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 there was a big sort of scandal that the Modi government was burying a report about unemployment numbers. And so Mesh Jha, Business Standard, I think, broke that story. Uh, and then uh, once the election results were out and once Modi was sworn in, uh, conveniently, they say, okay, those numbers that were leaked are actually now the official numbers coming out after the election. So again, those numbers sort of telling you about how unemployment is, is at a, uh, I think, a 20-year high. And so you are sort of seeing these headwinds. And, and, and from a policy perspective, there really is a limit on how much they can really do uh, right now. You know, in that piece that I outlined, there's largely speaking three policy prescriptions that you can have. Uh, one is your, you know, your fiscal policy, but that's already been quite stressed. Uh, the fiscal deficit is is quite big, and if people, you know, if listeners haven't uh, taken a look at it, Raghuram Rajan's recent speech at uh, at Brown University for the OP Jindal lecture really sort of outlines, you know, from a fiscal perspective, just how uh, just how how poor the situation is for India. 
Um, and so, you know, already that sort of is a, is a limitation. Uh, and then from a monetary policy perspective, obviously you can have rate cuts, but you know, one of the research pieces that I cited said that there's a lag time uh, of at least nine months that, you know, we sort of see results, six months or nine months that you sort of see before, before those results are seen. And then the large sort of thing is the structural reforms, which the budget in the first hundred days didn't really address. Uh, and so, you know, you're sort of seeing a lot of the, uh, the structural problems emerge. You're seeing a lot of inaction and, and really a narrowing of policy options from the government. And so it's a really interesting time, you know, what sort of options they've got going forward and how they're really going to address this problem head on. Because, uh, you know, going back to sort of the grand strategic question, it's about resources, the amount of power that you can sort of have to achieve your interests in the world, your interests domestically really depends on the resources you have. And right. if you can't get the economy on track, you know, it's going to mean a limitation to how much you can achieve in the world. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we uh, we talk about debates about, you know, whether India can be a great power, and certainly economic strength is uh, underlying uh, the answer to that question. Um, you know, let me ask you, so the BJP in India today is a large tent party. You know, I think I think the argument that it is the nationally dominant party that has fully substituted the Congress, uh, which historically was dominant in India, mm-hmm. I think that's a lot easier to make today. Um, going mm-hmm. into the second term. The Congress party certainly doesn't seem to be any closer to uh, recouping its historic position. But where that gets us to is that when you have a party like the BJP in India, or let's say, you know, the LDP in Japan, for example, the nationally dominant party there, you start to get intra-party politics, right? You have mm-hmm. various factions within the party that have different sets of interests. Uh, and in the case of the BJP, sort of the two sets of BJP priorities are obviously you have the nationalism laden agenda, very big on social conservatism issues, uh, building up Indian national power, asserting uh, India's um, preferences more uh, more directly in the immediate region and on the world stage. And then on the other side, you have sort of the more kind of center right technocratic uh, half of the BJP, uh, you know, the part that's kind of always done better with the international investor class, for example, uh, the folks who mm-hmm. give people uh, hope that India will finally be able to um, swallow some of the bitter pills of structural reform that have been long sought by um, investors, especially uh, internationally. Uh, what can we say that we've learned in the past, I guess, couple years about the tensions between those two parts of the party and, and who's really triumphing, right? I mean, here, you know, I'm not being particularly subtle. I'm referring to things like, obviously, the strikes on Balakot in February before the elections, uh, even the anti-satellite weapon test in March. Uh, certainly, we'll get to this in the discussion, uh, but the um, abrogation of parts of uh, Article 370 and Article 35A of the Indian Constitution pertaining to Kashmir. Um, you know, the the skeptics now point to the fact that the BJP is being more saffron than ever, uh, in the sense that the the former uh, faction is triumphing over the latter. Uh, what's your sense about you know where where the intraparty dynamics are really are really going here? Yeah, I mean this has been one of those you know one of those areas where you get to really test your hypotheses because you know one of the big things that I sort of saw going into the election was that there was a there was a method to uh, Prime Minister Modi's approach to economic reforms. Um, and, you know, it was it was reform early out of the gate, make sure that you had enough time left in your term for those reforms to gestate and the inevitable slowdown that comes from the reforms that passes before you're up for re-election. So, you know, if you look at the Vajpayee example or even the Chandra Babu Naidu example in two big reformers, one at the national level, one at the state level, they reformed throughout their term. And so a lot of the, you know, the, the slowdowns that happened inevitably because of reform, the immediate sort of impact. 
um, if you're doing it throughout, there's a chance that a lot of those, uh, you know, those those negative initial short term negative impacts are when you're up for reelection. Uh, and I think Prime Minister Modi, that was the sense or that was the logic was that he would reform early and out of the gate, do a lot of FDI reforms up front in his first two years, do a lot of the structural reforms uh, and then move you know, slowly to an agenda that was, as we saw, more about subsidies, more about um, social development, like the cooking gas, the, the Clean India program. There's a cooking gas and, and free LPG connections to, uh, to women in you know, rural households. Uh, free housing, affordable housing in rural and urban areas, and then, you know, full at the last year, just sort of pure subsidies to farm farmers. Sort of you saw a logic to that reform agenda. And the idea really was that, you know, hopefully he would return at the start of the second term to an idea where he would be aggressive on reforms again and that he would really do more on reforms. What it seems to have happened is, you know, uh, instead of going to reforms, he's become really aggressive now on, on Hindutva. Uh, and that's sort of been something where, you know, now you've seen a lot of um, activity about, uh, you know, as you said, Kashmir and 35A and 370, but also you know, Supreme Court deliberations on the Ram Temple, uh, which people are watching very closely. Uh, and, you know, really sort of one one sense that, you know, you, you really had when people were analyzing the elections was that in the last five years, there was no bone given to that other wing of the party, as you said. Very little was done on Hindutva. Obviously, you know they were given a free pass, uh, and you know, Modi never explicitly came out and, and stopped them from you know cow vigilantes and you know, uh, and, and sort of the, the horrific things that some of the lower members of uh, lower level members of the party were saying. Uh, but you didn't really see you know an active uh, agenda being driven by the BJP, and they really you know Modi in 2014 really stuck to an economic message. Uh, in that election. Right. In 2019, you saw that change quite dramatically. He really didn't talk about the economy much, talked a lot more about, you know, the strong message he was sending Pakistan and, and, and leadership that he was demonstrating in the world and making sure that, you know, we were creating the society and reclaiming control, that sort of populist narrative. Uh, and that's been, you know, really a, a, a concerning shift that, you know, where we are seeing a, a visible slowdown in, in the focus on the economics and, and a much more, you know, uh, uh, directed focus on, on the Hindutva angles. And I think it's really going to be, you know, a test of, you know, does, does Prime Minister Modi think that now with this mandate that he's got, uh, a resounding victory from his electorate, a weak opposition that really is in a position to, to stop his agenda from going forward, does that think does that mean that he thinks he's got uh, sort of a clear path ahead? Yeah, I mean, and, in tactical uh, terms, in tactical terms, I think the turn towards nationalism has paid dividends, right? Um, if yeah. we can, if we can attribute the massive mandate to that, certainly partially. I mean, you know, I'd say that we had some early indicators. I mean, certainly, I think the elevation of uh, Yogi Adityanath in Uttar Pradesh. Oh, yeah was a pretty uh, good indicator uh, in the first term that this might be where things were going. Uh, but that's interesting. I mean, you know, I, I think this is still very much an open question, the relationship between uh, India's economic slowdown running into headwinds and the transition into a more hardline kind of Hindutva agenda. Um, you know, so let me ask you, so Prashant and I did a whole podcast uh, on the Article 370 issue, uh, you know, explaining what it is. It's a little arcane, uh, wound up in the history mm -hmm. of South Asia. So if listeners aren't familiar with that, I will say um, I would recommend you go listen to that 
episode to get yourself up to speed. Uh, but Amon, you know, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, we're almost three months out from the August 5th uh, reveal uh, by Amit Shah, the Home Minister, of the presidential decision to abrogate parts of Article 370 uh, and 35A, and, um, you know, um, which was preceded by a crackdown in Kashmir that is still ongoing. There's been a you know, the Kashmir issue has effectively been internationalized again, I think, as a result of this Indian action. Uh, it's it's part of the global agenda. It's been discussed at the United Nations. There's been hearings uh, in Congress. Uh, all sorts of American lawmakers are expressing concern about this issue. Um, the Indian government has clearly made a calculation that it thinks that it can weather the storm. And uh, given things that you referred to at the beginning of this discussion, including you know, the Indo-Pacific strategy, the realities of U.S.-India strategic ties, the fact that the U.S., uh, that India knows that the United States needs India as a counterweight to China. Um, India's probably right that it can get away with what it's doing in Kashmir over the long run. But I'm wondering, what do you think the actual sort of long-term um, consequences of, of um, what is happening now in Kashmir, um, you know, what's, what's likely the result of that going to be on U.S.-India ties over the long run, if anything? Yeah, so I mean, you know, you've got from from the government's perspective, I mean, I would say that there are two problems uh, that they sort of, in reality, face whether they agree with the assumption behind those problems or not. There are two problems. One is the internal side, which is there's going to inevitably be a legal challenge to this, and and you know the way that in which they did it is 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 up for debate. You know whether they can actually undermine a constitutional amendment by a proclamation by the president and then a vote in parliament. Right. Um, and then you've got the big sort of external problem uh, that is the perception uh, of how India, which is supposed to be, you know, uh, increasingly from a values perspective, the kind of partner that the U.S. should look for, especially when they're trying to make the argument on China and, and sort of the things that they're doing, uh, especially in, in, you know, and I think contextually with, you know, what's going on in Hong Kong, you know, we always sort of point to, you know, we have the same values uh, and we have the same interests as India. Uh, and increasingly now you've seen the biggest problem has been uh, the communications uh, lockdown, the arrest of leaders in the state. Uh, those are sort of presenting the biggest um, challenges to, uh, to the U.S. and saying, you know, you've seen uh, chairman of the Senate India caucus, you know, Mark Warner, come out and say, I'm very concerned about uh, the communications, you know, uh, blackout and uh, the arrest of leaders. This is something that's incredibly concerning about what's happening in India. You sort of seen that come up in meetings, you know, even even when um, uh, India's external affairs minister, S.J. Shankar, was in, in Delhi, sort of he was constantly sort of talking about how the media had misrepresented, you know, what was happening in Kashmir. and It was actually peaceful, but he had to grapple with the reality that this communications crackdown and the way and the method in which India did this is a, is a massive problem. And so, you know, you've got that on the one side and then you've got the further complication which is that you've got now effectively one wing of India of, of the U.S. political spectrum uh, that is increasingly much more um, sort of upset with India about its decision on Kashmir. So you had just before the Howdy Modi a big event in in Texas with President Trump and Prime Minister Modi, you had Bernie Sanders, you know, put out an op-ed talking about uh, the implications of Kashmir and standing with Kashmiris and saying what India is doing isn't right. right. You've had Elizabeth Warren come out and make a statement uh, about, you know, what's happening in Kashmir. Uh, and then on the flip side, you know, and this is something that the Indian government has tried to walk back. You've had Modi kind of throwing in his luck with Trump and saying, yeah. you know, Akbar Trump Sarkar saying he's he's almost seemed like an endorsement of Trump saying in this time it's going to be Trump's government uh, replicating a, a slogan that he used 
for his 2014 election. And you've had, you know, Minister Jay Shankar try and walk that back. But inevitably, you have seen, you know, that sort of partisan divide now on Kashmir effectively. And I think that's going to be really interesting to see. I mean, you know, we've, we've had this become uh, politicized in a way domestically within the U.S. We've had it become politicized internationally in ways um, that are going to be challenged for India to grapple with. Now, obviously, as you said, they, they believe they've got a handle on things. They wouldn't have done it if they didn't think that they were going to weather it. Uh, the, the, there, there are still some pretty strict controls from what they're saying. Obviously, the leaders now have been released, although I think there's there's some conjecture about which leaders were and aren't, but the communications restrictions are still there. And, and you know, I think just today there was uh, some member of the BJP who said that if there was any statement that gets put out by any of these political leaders about 370, they're ending up back in jail. So you are sort of seeing this very, very muscular approach to Kashmir. And that's just not going to help. And I think if that's going to be the approach moving forward, they have to understand that there's going to be that increasing um, you know, uh, negative criticism about it, not just from the Western media, but actually from from the governments, because they are going to see uh, that this is not the kinds of values that they expect from India. And this is not the free and open society that they take, you know, proclaiming in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, they would like to see some of that happen within India as well. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that's going to be something that, you know, India will have to grapple with, you know, whatever agenda they're going to drive with that. Um, I think if I can, you know, uh, uh, quote sort of Aaron Sorkin here, you have a PR problem because you have an actual problem. Uh, so it's not just the public relations they have to deal with, they have to deal with the actual problem at hand oh, and the perception well of that problem in the West. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, this is how you start getting a feedback effect of resentment. The more, I mean, look, uh, you know, you've heard prominent Indian commentators who largely agree with the BJP reacting to many of the comments that you cited by American lawmakers, presidential candidates, and who have you as we sort of start to see the first signs of the uh, U.S.-India bipartisan consensus in D.C. beginning to fray. And when you start getting that resentment cycle, uh, I think you risk this snowballing into a place where U.S.-India relations start to look very different because Americans start making these good faith, uh, you know, expressing good faith concerns about what's happening in Kashmir. And then, you know, that's again another thing. It's very difficult, I think, for many in New Delhi to accept the fact that these are good faith criticisms that come from a place of genuine concern as opposed to sort of, you know, Pakistan running the show in DC, uh, you know, you always hear about, yeah. um, I mean, look, both Pakistan and India are hiring lobbying, um, sorry, uh, PR firms to, um, you know, push their side of the narrative here on Kashmir. I've been getting emails in my inbox, certainly from, um, these firms, uh, talking about, you know, what's happening. Um, but, but I mean, this is where the, the challenge I think comes in, uh, for the longer term prospect of the relationship, uh, uh, you know, stemming from Kashmir and, and everything that's happening there. So I don't, I mean, you know, the question now is uh, the path to normalcy, I think, remains very much uncertain here. Um, you know, we're, we're about three months out. Uh, the question is, how much longer does India basically keep Kashmir on a complete lockdown? I mean, is, is Kashmir going to become the next uh, West Bank or, God forbid, uh, the next Xinjiang uh, that, you know, some comparisons have been made to that as well? Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case, but India needs to, I think, provide a much clearer accounting of where everything is going to go. I mean, there's this you know, the whole Indian narrative is that everything that's being done is done because of external threats from Pakistan, concerns about terrorist groups that might uh, infiltrate across the border and, and start a, a massive insurgency in Kashmir. But India has a real problem here that I don't think, uh, you know, changing the constitutional status, turning uh, Jammu and Kashmir into a union territory, separating it from Ladakh, that's not going to solve the fact that 
many Kashmiris continue to feel disenchanted. And, and, and you know, these concerns, I think, uh, deserve to be taken more seriously. Um, what about what about within the region? I mean, uh, we haven't really talked about the India-Pakistan bilateral relationship, uh, which has certainly taken a hit. Uh, Imran Khan, the Pakistani prime minister, has certainly been using some very strong language about the Indian leadership. Uh, he wrote a New York Times op-ed in which he compared the RSS, the BJP's parent organization, uh, to the Nazi party in Germany, uh, talking about the organization's sort of ideological extremism. Um, and, and he brought that message to New York during the General Assembly as well. Where where do things go from here uh, between India and Pakistan, in your view? I mean, there was hope again last year that Imran Khan, every time a new Pakistani prime minister enters the stage, there's a period of rapprochement in the relationship. Uh, there was hope that would happen with Imran Khan. And instead, we're, we're sort of in a, a very different place where obviously we saw a major skirmish this year in February. Uh, and now uh, I think, you know, India, India is very much regarding Pakistan straight up as its, you know, public enemy number one. Um, and at the meantime, Pakistan's economy is obviously in a very dangerous place as well, which has raised concerns about what Pakistan's options actually are here. But I'm just curious yeah. for your take on this. Yeah, I mean, one one very sort of interesting thing that I, I kept sort of repeating to myself, so I, Imran Khan in New York sort of saying, oh, you know, if things keep going this way, we're headed for nuclear war. I think he, that's what he said. Like, I, and I won't be able to stop it. There's nothing I can do. We're, we're headed towards nuclear war. It's very interesting to see him sort of take him his own agency out of the process there because he's one of those participants in, in, in whatever escalation would happen. So that's a very, you know, from a tactical perspective, it was interesting to see him sort of talk about the, the specter of nuclear war while completely absolving himself of uh, what has happened. But, you know, obviously this is something that both sides have, uh, made made matters worse in this case. You know, you have seen a war of rhetoric and a war of words uh, really sort of translate into you know something that 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 has a, had a specter hangover hanging over the subcontinent. Uh, I think for Pakistan, uh, things are looking very serious. You know, with the FATF, um, I think the recent reports saying that they have made very little progress on a lot of the uh, recommendations that they they had to sort of undertake or the um steps that they had to take on combating terror financing and i think india on the other hand is taking a strategy of completely uh, moving past pakistan in terms of how it approaches the region and saying you know we're just not going to deal uh with this country we're going to look at other regional arrangements be it bimstec be it bbin be it mekonganga cooperation they're sort of looking more eastward in terms of how they approach the region and you know you you sort of have a complete uh i i, I hate to say it but sort of a, a lack of uh prospect in terms of where any sort of discussion between the two countries on resolving the conflict goes even in the heights of you know i'm sort of pointing to the Vajpayee years here you know even after cargill and even after the parliament attacks you sort of still did see acts of statesmanship by both sides uh making sort of trips and overtures out to peace um, you know, even after uh, the amassing of troops in, uh, after 2001, you still saw in the Vajpayee years before 2004, when he lost his election, you saw overtures for peace. Uh, same thing, you know, under Manmohan Singh up until at least 2008, which is when the peace process, the process pretty much died after the Mumbai attacks. You had consistent efforts and attempts at statesmanship to see uh, dialogue between the two countries and where that could go. I think since... Uh, Uri and Patankot for Prime Minister Modi and his initial overtures at peace. After those two terrorist attacks, you really have sort of seen him say, I'm done. I'm really not going to uh, 
put some political capital or put any effort behind this and i'm just going to focus on other regional uh other regional arrangements partnerships with other countries uh and you sort of see the rhetoric just reach an incendiary point where there's been you know i remember uh in the elections too talk sort of talking about a vote or it w i think it was even now repeated in the upcoming state elections in Maharashtra and Haryana, BJP leaders saying a vote for Narendra Modi is a vote for nukes in, in Pakistan. Yeah. Uh, and so you've seen that kind of incendiary language just emerge uh, at a point where you've got two very nationalist, very bombastic, and, and arguably both populist leaders in both countries, which really doesn't make for a recipe uh, for detente, for engagement, for back-channel negotiations even. Uh, and so um, it looks like the relationship there is in is in a, is in a pretty pretty deep trough absolutely uh, and and you know uh it's it's really hard to see how things can be reversed i still that that's the part of me that remains optimistic that if you know uh, there can still be statesmen and, and there are people that you know i think uh having a team and and sort of people like uh Jay Shankar, who are you know uh, diplomats that know how to reach an agreement make a deal are well versed in sort of that maybe that's sort of the alternative where they can sort of serve as back channels but it really really does not look good right now and and it's sort of regrettable how within the last five to six years things have, have reached this this point well Aman, unfortunately that's all the time we have today i know that both of us could talk about these issues for much longer uh but the good news Absolutely. is we'll go ahead, but, yeah, but the good news is we'll do uh we'll do more of these episodes and i really hope to have you back on it was great to have you on to introduce you uh to our podcast listeners uh so Aman is a regular contributor now at the diplomat so if you want to keep up with his writing uh you can follow him um on twitter uh, what's your twitter account it's just Aman Tucker, so A-M-A-N-T-H-A-K-K-E-R. Uh, should be pretty easy to find me. Great. Uh, so, Aman, thanks again for joining me, and we'll hope to have you back on soon. Thanks, Ankit, and this was really great. Looking forward to the next one. Absolutely. So for listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while but you haven't yet left us a review, please do that on either Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, or any other number of podcast providers out there. And finally, before we close, a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risk. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com.